Good evening. <laughs> Wonderful to have you all here. I know it'll be a very special treat to have Charles Simmons speaking about his work. I'm Elena Kalinowska, Director of Public Programs and Education here at the Hirschhorn Museum. And I am really delighted to welcome you at Meet the Artist presentation with Charles Simmons. Over the past 40 years, Charles has been investigating the relationship between humans and their environment through his imaginative sculpture and performance work. His work, Rock Flower, is currently on view in speculative forms curated by Mika Yoshitake here at the Hirschhorn Museum. So please, when you have a chance, go and see it. It's a wonderful, wonderful work. His work was also included in 1977 exhibition Probing the Earth, Contemporary Land Projects, curated by John Bertsley, who I am happy to tell you is this evening with us here. At the end of Charles' presentation, we will open the floor to questions. I also would like to thank the staff that has helped me to prepare this presentation of Charles, particularly Alex Bennigsten. Uh, now to our very special guest. Since the early 1970s, Charles Simmons has been creating an incredible body of work combining sculpture, architecture, performance, and community planning. His inventive work, which, will have, which we will have chance to experience tonight, is an exploration of the way people's beliefs are reflected in the structures they built and inhabit. His early sculptures of dwellings were created in the streets of New York City on the Lower East Side. Meant to be encountered unexpectedly, the dwellings are abandoned constructions of the little people, an imaginary civilization whose history is documented in Simmons' writings and films. While the little people and their dwellings are still part of Simmons' later work, he has gone on to explore the relationship between the growth and decay of other types of dwellings, the human body, the landscape, architecture, and plants. John Hallmark Neff said that Charles, reading and interest his lifelong education in the Museum of Natural History in New York and his exploration of models of life forms that grow, evolve, and change according to need take Simmons far beyond traditional notions of sculpture or architecture or even definition of what artists do. Charles has created his miniature and large-scale works in cities and institutions around the world, including a fabulous installation at Dumbarton Oaks here in Washington in 2009. He has had solo exhibitions in numerous places, including the Centre National d'Art Contemporain in Paris, Museum of Modern Art, the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago, the Guggenheim, the Architectural Museum in Basel, Galerie Nationale de Jume de Pam, Paris, and so many others. Now, let us all welcome Charles Simmons.
I don't have to say anything because it was better than I'm going to say. <laughs> Thank you, Melina. Thank you all for coming. I think the introduction probably tells more than I'm going to be able to say. Uh, but it was very nice, thanks. And uh, thank you, Mika, for inviting me and the Hirshhorn, too. Um, I will try to cover 40-odd uh, years of work and uh, give you really an overview of everything. I think um, in the beginning, I'd just like to show you a very short part of a film uh, that is the only actual document of sort of how I began. And it maybe it, since I will refer to some of the issues in it, throughout the talk, I think it'd be worth having this sort of, it's a very spontaneous kind of street video that some kids came along and made and then gave to me. Uh, and it takes place in the early 70s, and it's sort of the beginning of what I did. Uh, somehow the, the actual moment. And by chance somebody came along, it wasn't something that was filmed then to make as a documentary or anything. But I collected that footage and with another filmmaker put it together to make a little film. And I think what's maybe, it's a very poorly made film in terms of the visual quality, but the patter of the people's reactions in the street to what I do is it's the only way that I will be able to communicate it to you. And I think you'll find it to be a little bit of a key to some of the attitudes that I have in what I've done and where I've chosen to go to, to do my work. A lot of my work has to do with choosing contexts that bring out and help me discover things that I'm interested in and, and that sort of amplify the meaning, as I see in my work, of its ability to reach people and, and offer some changes. So you're going to see maybe four or five minutes of a very simple little film, and then I'll come and give a proper overview of all what I do. Okay, so... Uh, I'm going to start off just by giving a very, very short little uh, biographical idea of where I come from and how come I ended up doing what I do. And um, I think Melena actually mentioned, uh, John Neff, uh, that I actually grew up, in fact, in the shadow of the Museum of Natural History in New York uh, at a time when uh, Central Park West, which is where I lived, uh, was sort of Shrinksville. My parents were both psychoanalysts, and a lot of the psychoanalysts lived on Central Park West in the 1950s. And as I did. And um, I went to sort of uh, progressive leftist sort of schools, um, the ones that J. Edgar Hoover, Pinko schools, as it were, uh, the commie Jews, as it were. Uh, a lot of the parents were involved in the civil rights movement. Actually, Andrew Goodman went to my grade school, and Minnie Jean Brown came to my high school as a refugee from the South. So a lot of civil rights issues around and a lot of paranoia because it was a time of McCarthyism and a lot of people were academics. So there was a kind of atmosphere of uh, anxiety around. Uh, and I um, grew up like that with a couple of talents. Uh, my brother and I had a facility in mathematics and in modeling clay. and. Uh, when high school was sort of the time of um, Sputnik, when all the schools were trying to find their science kids and their math kids. And um, I was being pushed along in mathematics. And um, I loved mathematics. I thought that's what I would do. I, th I think at that time in high school, I thought I would be an actuary. Uh, that seemed like a progressive idea about mathematics if you weren't going to go become a theoretical mathematician, which I was sure I couldn't be. And then uh, my brother left for um, college and left behind some clay. And I discovered one night, literally, that I would 
could model this clay. I made a kind of wrestler uh, with all sorts of musculature, and it looked very amazing to me, uh, particularly because I didn't realize that I had, it was like watching your hands do something that you didn't know you were able to do. And, um, and actually, I can remember the moment as clear as it is now. And I remember bringing the, this little wrestler, sort of crouched down wrestler, to school in a little shoebox to sort of say, well, look what I can do. And um, nobody believed that I'd made it because it did look quite realistic and so on. So I remember I smashed it and I made it again. And um, that was sort of, for me, the moment where I figured out, on the one hand, I knew what I could do or what I was capable of doing. And then it somehow needed then to take on some responsibility of having that ability. Um, and my parents were not unenlightened, I guess. They then sent me off to study with, it's hard to imagine in this day and age, but uh, with a, an Italian couple who um, made church reliefs, mostly. These very sort of 1950s looking, it's hard to describe them in terms of their modeling, but very generic kind of things. And I, I learned how to make pewty and angel wings and all sorts of stuff like that. And I pretty much thought of uh, Ghiberti and Michelangelo and Donatello as my pantheon of what I was aspiring towards. And I went off to college thinking I was already an artist. And I took then to school with me some busts that I had done and thinking that, well, I really knew what I was about. And um, so I arrived actually, in, I went to Berkeley and I arrived at the time of the free speech movement, literally. And uh, by chance, Mario Savio, who you see right there, let's see, lived down the block from me. And so he, I then was all of a sudden on the steering committee of the free speech movement. And I learned a lot about essentially political theater, I think is what it was really about in terms of organizing and also the theater of it all. Uh, as this event tells you in spades, uh, that's Mario Savio. Uh, and I actually I played Where's Waldo? I think I'm right there. Uh, but also this sort of sense that he had and that the group had of being able to really orchestrate for political m m intent uh, a scenario or like a theatrical event. I mean, one that comes to mind very clearly to me, um, you know, there were all protests of the faculty and the students for free speech and all those compromises from the administration of the university trying to figure out different gambits to try to placate this paralysis at that point of the university. And, um, you know, there's one convocation in an amphitheater up on the hill where uh, Mario Savio very theatrically was to present a petition. And the petition, visually, was a tremendous scroll, like a four-foot scroll. And uh, he's tried to get up on stage to present the petition. And, of course, the highway patrol, which was guarding the chancellor at that point, because Reagan was the governor, um, wrestled him off the stage. And all of a sudden, the entire campus went up in a riot. Uh, and this sort of sense of being able to, I mean, it was so well orchestrated and so, um, the administration looked so weak in its ability to even understand what was being done to them in a way. Uh, certainly had tremendous impact on me on the sense of being able to do things in public in that way, which I'd never run across anywhere. Um, I mean, the only sense I had were friends who had gone to the South to do voter registration. So I had no real direct contact with that kind of activity. And it certainly left a tremendous impression on me, as did then something else that happened in Berkeley, which was that this man, Stanley Fish, came 
And uh, many of my friends were graduate students in English, and they said, oh, Charles, Charles, you've got to go take this course. Stanley Fish is coming to give a course on Paradise Lost. I don't know if any of you are familiar with this book. At the time that he arrived, he was developing this idea of how to read Paradise Lost, and particularly how to place the, the onus on the reader. How does the reader read Paradise Lost? And how Milton, for instance, orchestrates a sentence so that you begin the sentence sort of thinking lascivious thoughts and sort of demonstrating to yourself your fallenness because at the end of the sentence he catches you up and reveals to you that you've actually had all these very unclean thoughts. Uh, and there was Stanley Fish spent a lot of time creating that kind of morality, how, how that, those sentences created a certain kind of morality and an ethic. And uh, that had a big impression on me, and as did this notion, which I then took to heart, that you know, if you're gonna make art, as it were, that you could simply are taking on a, you know, Milton's explaining the ways of God to man, right? That you're taking on a fairly big shitload of stuff. It's not just some little thing that you're gonna make, it's actually, trying to figure it all out and say something about it. And that left a very big impression on me that sort of the, the what is the scale of your endeavor? What are you trying to do? And what, what is its scope, if you will? And I then went to graduate school and um, wrote a thesis of 30 questions. Of course, the first one was, what is art? <laughs> and uh, I think along the way, you know, if there was no talk about art, what would art look like? And I basically spent my time trying to reduce down some of the issues of what is it, what is it that you do when you make art and so on. And started to I mean, make very esoteric and strange uh, reliefs, which you see there, for instance, uh, that little, made little encapsulations of art, little phrases from art history, a voyage to Scythra, or little quotations that were then translated into reliefs. They're very esoteric. I mean, this one, for instance, was really only made to provide a place for me to cut my bricks, which I was already using bricks to make the sculptures that I was making. But all of them involved my body. This actually was is a cast of this thing, which had then my blood in a test tube here. A lot of the things had to do with meditations about my body and body functions and body fluids. I would collect them. And, you know, one of a series of tarot cards where you'd sort of flip through a deck and meditate on your body functions or some image of the body and time and come up with some sculptural object. And this stuff became really as esoteric and as uninteresting as, I'll save you having to see it. Uh, no, there's just completely strange things and my loft was getting filled up with uh, just endless stuff. Uh, and at one point then, uh, I just sat down on the floor and drew a circle, painted the loft white, and I sort of said, well, let's try first and this sort of will bring us to the work that I do. Uh, I, the, the issue was, well, let's try first to forget and eliminate everything we've learned. In other words, how do you sort of, and then just see what's left. So all this training I had and all this knowledge I had about art history and all the training, with, even with my modeling and so, you know, eliminate it all and then see what's left. And pretty much what was left was pretty simple for me. Uh, and it essentially was myself and my body. And if you think of your body as your first home, your body as a place, and time. And that's sort of what I ended up 
with in my hand, as it were, and from which then I tried to develop a kind of, well, I did, a, 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 not a religion, but a, a kind of sense of the different relationships between those things. And I'd say essentially, which you'll see in a minute, all my work comes from a few days, mostly it's an extrapolation of some simple thoughts about your relation to yourself and your body and time and the earth, if you will. Uh, and just a where are you and, and the materiality of it. And all the things are certainly a kind of kaleidoscope of mixing these different ingredients in different ways. And based on some simple uh, rituals, really, that brought those feelings, the, the sense of that, to consciousness. And I'll try to explain a little bit about that so you can get a feeling. But so, uh, for instance, then I went and buried myself in the earth. And that's me being buried and then being born from the earth. Did a work that was called birth. Uh, and actually quite difficult thing to do and claustrophobic and certain somewhat frightening. Uh, let myself be buried alive and then had to push out to, to be reborn. Uh, and then uh, there's some, one that's missing here, but from that one then came another one where I then went back to the earth and gave the impression of my body to the earth as a way of forming the earth. Uh, and then this one, landscape body dwelling, where I would take clay and remodel my body as it were earth, as it were a landscape, uh, so that in a certain way when you touched it, you touch it, you're touching the earth, but you also have the sensation of touching yourself. And a lot of my work, and, and then ultimately on that would build then a house so you turn your, your body, your first home, into a home. Uh, and a lot of my work is, has this kind of mixture of a kind of um, sort of simultaneity of metaphors of, you know, this, in this case, the body is at once a body, but at the same time, a landscape and so forth. A lot of them are compacted metaphors and experiences, in this case, uh, that, that are really what drive the, 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 what I do, if you will. And in a certain way, these are, I call them the, the little mythology of an imaginary civilization, because in, this, in fact, from this came then this idea of an imaginary group of people. And I'll show you how that evolved. So, uh, and this is sort of a parenthesis that might make it clear. This is actually something that was just used as a demonstration. I worked um, about 10 years ago in a mental hospital in France with patients on a communal project. And uh, to introduce the patients to the idea of what we were going to do, I essentially showed them what is there, a, really a recapitulation of how my work actually evolved. It's really very simple. In the beginning, since I was mostly involved with clay, uh, I took a piece of clay, the sort of clay as the material, if you will, and I pressed it down and sprinkled it with some sand, and that material then became a place. So place then had the idea of populating, fantastically populating that place, started to build, and then introduced the issue of time. And that's pretty much how it went. As soon as you had a way of building, you had an imaginary group of people, actually. And then from that, then you had the story of where they went and what they did and the different kinds of places that they inhabited. And from that, then mushroomed out what is now 40-odd years of work, but from which this all grew. Uh, and this is actually the very first one of those, I think 1969. I just put some clay down, pushed it down, sort of made a putative stair to a little ritual place. 
And then uh, I was living on a, a Christie Street, which is a Lower East Side street facing a park. And um, I, I heard kids outside playing. It was springtime. And they were having a great time. And I was in this very hot loft doing my things in the back, my little dwellings. And I thought that was sort of stupid. I could be outside too. I'd been doing a lot of work outside. Uh, I lived in the same building as an artist named Gordon Matta Clark. And we used to go around and do things outside together. So I called up a friend and I said, well, can I come and make a little dwelling on your windowsill? And he happened to live at that time as pre-Soho Soho on Green Street. He said, sure. So I went and made a little dwelling on his window ledge. And it was great fun. People came along and everybody had a nice time. I then decided, well, okay, these little people, which I had imagined at this point, are going to start to migrate up Green Street. And I started to migrate my people in the gutter all along, making dwellings everywhere. And basically, the little people infested Green Street. And um, this was at a time when, how do you explain that? Uh, this is like early 1970s. Minimal art was the ascendant version of art making. Everything was big and hard and uh, sharp and, and abstract. And uh, I was making, at that time, what you would say was, uh, you know, soft, pink, ephemeral, uh, fantasy work. And so, finally, Soho, pre-Soho at that time, still had some truckers and some workers and people who'd come and go. And they got into the little people right away, no question. You know, uh, they'd tell me all about what happened to the little people last night, and each day I'd get a recounting of what's going on with the little people. So there was no, they just dived right in. Uh, but the few artists who lived in the neighborhood at that time would come along and, um, you know, I'm always working facing a wall. So somebody comes up behind me, essentially. And, um, you know, the truckers would just jump in and say, well, what's, what happened today? What, what are you, you know, what's happening? And the other, the um, artists would just sort of stand there. And they sort of look at me like I was cuckoo. Which, I mean, I think so that in a certain way I was. I mean, from their point of view, certainly. And um, they would, you know, sort of look and then they'd just walk away. There was no real, they didn't have anything to say, or if they said anything, it was like very dismissive and uh, as if I was really silly. And uh, I, you know, took that to heart enough to say, well, okay, I'll go and find a neighborhood where uh, I could expect to find the kind of reaction that the truckers were giving me. Just a sort of candid reaction to what was going on. And um, since I lived on an edge, part of the Lower East Side, I chose a, actually chose a very discreet neighborhood, politically and as a geography, that I would go in and then infest this neighborhood with this imaginary group of people, like a little mythology that would sort of waft through the community, that community, and that people would then have as a kind of little daily mythology. And um, so I went then to, I think it was, let's see what's coming up to uh, between 8th and 9th Street on Avenue C, and I sat down in the gutter and um, started to make my drawings, and everybody was very happy, and they brought me coffee, and we all hung out, and uh, people would come, and then they'd go away and bring their friends, and everybody sort of got very involved in the dwellings, and they would tell me about dwellings that they'd seen around the neighborhood that, where I had not even made one. In other words, they were actually imagining them in places where I hadn't made them yet. Uh, and so the, I, it seemed very quick 
that the, it, it was quite remarkable in a way that how quickly the f need and the want of that fantasy sort of mushroomed throughout the community, throughout the neighborhood. Uh, and I got very involved in that. And I mean, this is not atypical. as a kid who's adding a diving board, right? I usually work on a flat, on a ledge, and often I just extend the landscape a little bit so that if somebody else who wants to hang out with me wants to make their own dwelling, they make their dwelling, and we'd sort of stand there and talk to each other about our dwellings. And sometimes we can then connect trails so that the stories mix together in a certain way. And uh, became very active kind of situation because people go get their friends, and the friends come make dwellings, kids and grown-ups too. And um, a very busy kind of situation. And uh, in a way, in this particular neighborhood at that time, which was in the early 70s, um, you know, the neighborhood was tremendous, in tremendous transition. Uh, I think t maybe 20% of the, of the neighborhood was vacant lots, and 30% um, of the buildings were abandoned. Uh, and so it was a very rough time, and things were, you know, falling down everywhere. Um, and I think in a certain way, the dwellings, you know, you may have, the reason I showed you that little piece of film clip is that you can see some of the reactions which are so emblematic of this, that time and that place, which is to say, you know, one guy says, well, every time you try to do something around here, it gets broke, or, you know, maybe we should try to fix up this lot and do something constructive and so and so. And the sort of backdrop of destructiveness and of things falling down, if you will, or being destroyed, which was the signature of the neighborhood. I mean, endless buildings that were vacant, that people go in, derelicts go in and light a fire and burn down the building. So, you know, it was a tremendous time of transition. The, these little dwellings, which then very quickly would be destroyed, even though people became very protective of them and on a given block would say, well, this is our dwelling, don't touch it, you know. Uh, they would sort of adopt the dwelling as their dwelling. Uh, notwithstanding, they would eventually get destroyed because it just takes one... I mean, I usually measure their lifespan by the height they are because little kids don't have to think twice about putting their finger through it. Uh, so in a certain way, they, their lifespan was not very long. Um, at the same time, they in a certain way were an emblem for everything that was happening around them. You know, you do something in a very conventional way, beautiful, that takes, that you can, they identify very quickly with a certain amount of time and preciousness you see with the tweezers and so, that it's been being done with some care and some skill in a certain general way, uh, that then, oops, it's destroyed. And that, from other people's point of view, is in that situation, you know, very emblematic of what was in general, but in, in other situations, it's, it factors out differently. But for me, it's sort of interesting because in a way, I, the, the meaning of these things, these dwellings, a little habitation for the little people, uh, is in a certain way, um, how do you want to say, um, solidified and made more dramatic by their destruction. In a certain way, the witnessing where the people witness them being made with certain care and then Boop, bang, it's destroyed. There's a certain amount of drama to that. And that drama, in a certain way, roots the kind of meaning of what they're about very dramatically in people's memory. So the people, for instance, would be able to tell, often told me about dwellings, even specifically what was in a given dwelling, even though it had long been gone. And this kind of quality, as opposed to, for instance, if they stayed around and became like a statue that you see every day, that 
you know, you finally don't notice anymore. In a certain way, the drama of their becoming and being destroyed was a very uh, useful, I'd say, is the way maybe I'd put it from my point of view, as a way of creating meaning in, in terms of how they enter people's lives and their memory. And the other thing that's maybe, let's see what's coming next. Maybe, uh, well, wait, let's go back. Um, well, I'll, actually, we'll go talk about that later. So I got then actually then very involved in the community. And so, you know, it was a piece of cake to say, well, okay, here we are, because I'm always working in a vacant lot. So, okay, let's try to do something about this vacant lot. As the guy in the film prince said, well, can't we fix up this lot? So I got very involved in a lot of community groups, became a member of something called the Lower East Side Coalition for Human Housing, did some sweat, sweat equity sponsorships, and then also worked with the, uh, this is a block on East 2nd Street, uh, this is actually the opening of a little play lot that we made all together. Uh, and actually, I just provided, the, in a certain way, the organization and the resources of getting people together. Uh, this is a mural that's painted by a group called the Young New Yorkers, essentially a youth group that's sort of meant to steer kids away from gangs and drugs at that time. Uh, melding that with the Association of Community Service Centers, some administrative groups that could receive the funding and so forth, we then created a little play lot. And in fact, the Young New Yorkers did their mural of what they believed was their history of coming from Puerto Rico and sort of the facade and promise of New York, it's an Empire State Building, and then the reality of what life in the streets was like. And uh, for me, it was a very wonderful, I mean, the sense of community of this the quality of this experience was, I mean, irreplaceable in a certain way in terms of the difference between that and working alone, if you will. Uh, and so I did a lot of that. I got very involved in a lot of community groups, little vest pocket parks and things like that. Um, and it certainly changed a lot of my attitudes. I think what, what I'm driving towards, which you'll see later on, is that it, this whole experience of going then into a community and discovering that I had some utility or in some meaning to that situation and becoming part of it uh, was very revelatory to me uh, as opposed to which actually at that time I'd started to live with a, a famous art critic, a woman who uh, I would come home, then I'd moved already, come home and I would sit at these dinner dinners with let's call them fancy artists, famous artists who would talk about their day and what they were saying and talking about was so completely Beyond, I couldn't understand a word of what they were saying. And it was very upsetting, actually, uh, because I had no way to really communicate to them what this experience was about. Uh, I mean, my, my little emblem for this experience was, uh, as we were building this little play lot, uh, this guy and I looked up and said, where's the hammer? And then all of a sudden, we saw the backsides of five kids racing to see who'd be the first one to get the hammer. And that the feeling of that was not something I was finding in the art community, which I, at that time, didn't have a lot to do with. Anyway, go on. I then, uh, for instance, fantasized. A lot of my thoughts, you'll see, have to do with how people live in time and space and how the architecture that they make reflects their beliefs. And um, this maybe is a good point of entry for some of those thoughts. This is then the same space. This is that l lot. Uh, this is actually would be another wall of one of the buildings. This is a street, and that's a street. That's the other wall. This is the remains of a group of people, the geometry of whose architecture was 45 degrees askew to the coordinate accents uh, of, of the New York in that area above uh, Houston Street. Uh, and it was just sort of a, a little 
it's just a little sculpture, but a kind of play on a riff on the issue of the arbitrariness of the grid structure of Manhattan at that point. And I, I um, had a lovely feminist uh, girlfriend who didn't mind to put her bottom for other fantasies about a lot of my things obviously do with the body and the earth for other little play lots and so forth. I mean, these are sort of the fantastical side of some of the things that were very practically being done at that time. Um, and I just throw this in because it sort of is maybe also a reflection back towards the art world. Uh, I became friends then with Robert Smithson. And as I was making my little play lot, he wrote a letter of support to try to help me raise some of the funds that we needed for the thing. And it was one of the rare occasions where I felt, and he particularly, uh, you know, that another artist really embraced helping another artist at that time. It seemed pretty rare to me. And I threw this in because actually this is more a little art historical anecdote. This is a book he gave to me uh, called Flats. Uh, basically, it's a little fiction about a, essentially hobos who lived out in the um, Meadowlands outside New York with all the weeds and so. And the characters in the book are actually, their names are just different cities like St. Louis, Dallas, Fort Worth, and so forth. And they move around in this kind of non-space of that, that landscape. And um, I never, I, I didn't have a chance to, I got to be friends with Bob, but I never asked him about this because I didn't know. But I think, you know, he did a film with his wife, Nancy, uh, where he, it's called Swamp, I think, where he tells, he should, basically at the camera, you hear him say, left, right, left, right, through these weeds. And it occurred to me that this very possibly was the kind of, how do you want to say, the lever or the key, the touchstone for that idea for that film. I have the intuition it's this, this, um, this book. This is a, 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 one of these landscape body drawings that I gave to him that he had up on his wall at home. So he had a, actually, we had a good time talking about things, and, and um, you'll see some of the influences he had on me in a minute. Um, now, this sort of brings back some of those same issues of, at that time, I was very, uh, let's just say ambivalent, <laughs> is a kind word for it, about the art community and the art museums and all these things, uh, because largely the nice thing about the dwellings that I made in the street was their, uh, that you happen upon them. It's not like you're going to see an artwork or that it's in a museum and that you have some expectation of what it is. It's just in your normal daily life. And you happen upon it and you say, well, what's, what's that? Oh. What is that? And there's a kind of freshness to that experience. And um, I've dealt with that in many different ways when it comes to trying to deal with the, quote, art, traditional art venues, if you will. Uh, and here's maybe some interesting examples. So that, for instance, this is, a, at that time when I began, there was a place called 112 Green Street. It was sort of an underground gallery for artists to just come and do projects. And as I was migrating up Green Street, this is Green Street, the guy who ran this space said, well, Charles, why don't you make one on my window ledge? And uh, so I did. I made one outside and inside. Uh, so, of course, the outside was destroyed very quickly. And the inside was kept as a special artwork. Uh, likewise, then later, I mean, quickly, art art people, if it were, uh, discovered me and they wanted me to do things in museums and so. So initially I was asked, for instance, to go do a thing in a Whitney Biennale. And I said, well, no, I'm, I'm uh, very busy working on the street 
on the Lower East Side. It was when I was really very involved all day long. And I'm not going to come up to the museum and make art for you guys up here. You can put a little label. This is the time of conceptual art. I said, you can put a little label on the wall. It says, Charles Simmons is an artist who makes strolling places for an imaginary civilization of little people. And if you go in such and such place, you'll find one. And already, for me, that was a very difficult kind of moment of sort of the realization, likewise, whenever the first picture of one of my works arrived in publication, that all of this possibility of the surprise and the innocence of the experience that people were having was being deprived for the, all those people who were then hearing about it or seeing it as, as a reproduction. All of a sudden, they were, that was stolen from them, the possibility of that initial very innocent encounter and what it meant. And so it was a very ambivalent time for me and very difficult time. Then uh, later I was invited to do a second, where are we with this? Whitney Biennale. And so here's a, my solution was to make a dwelling in the museum, but so that the little people weren't completely forlorn, there was a little signal tower. And so across the street was another dwelling. And, you know, these guys could figure out, well, okay, things are okay outside. Uh, you know, it's not so all, all so bad here. And uh, of course, these guys were whisked away very quickly at the end of the exhibition. And these guys hung on for about two years because the guy who had the building uh, finally got divorced and sold the building, so the little people had to go. But it was sort of the same issue of real world versus museum art situation. And likewise here, another situation, Venice Biennale, because then it was all of a sudden everywhere they wanted me to go and make art. So, uh, you know, there's a courtyard of the, of the museum there. And, um, you know, normally I'm working, I'm working in the street, people are coming by, it's a very busy and happy time. Uh, a lot of action, usually. And uh, this was in a courtyard of, a, you know, before the exhibition is open, so there's nobody there. You're just a hot courtyard in a museum, uh, and I said, well, well, let's, this is no good. Let's cut a hole in the wall to this little back street of Venice, and uh, then at least the little people have a view out, and the people out there who are never going to go to this essentially traveling cocktail party that's going to arrive in the, um, well, it's true, and uh, are going to arrive here, you know, these people don't know what this is, and the little people are much more hungry for the people out there, so it worked out actually very nicely because these uh, teenage girls discovered me very quickly and passed all these very, you know, surreptitiously, quickly passed flirtatious notes through this little wall while I was working. And so, so we gave, it's, I mean, all these things in a certain way revealed to me some of the, the, the how do you want to say, the bizarreness in, in many realms of how, how constricted and how predicated certain of the issues of an art situation that we then know uh, were and how, how um, I mean, it's through many things into relief. Uh, and it's some of this experience is what I'm driving at, which you'll see as we go forward, are the things that sort of set, the, the set in stone some of the attitudes that have arrived me to go work in a mental hospital, for instance, or go find other situations that provide other different contexts that will bring out other meanings in my work other than those that are available in a museum, for instance. Uh, and then I'll just very quickly tell you a little bit about the dwellings, which these dwellings in the street. Uh, it's basically an endless story of an imaginary people. 
and a kind of epic wandering. You're trying to, each one is a kind of incantation to make them a home, the little people. You don't actually see people. You see sort of where they once were. Sometimes it's as if they left a long time ago. Other times they left just before you arrived to look on it. But it's like an endless story and kind of floppy kind of time. It's not exactly linear. Um, and the making of them is just sort of trying to get that story to be whole as a way, making it clear enough for the little people to have a home. And that mostly arrives at the end when I sprinkle, the thing is still wet, and I sprinkle it with clay, with um, sands, different colored sands, and the image coalesces, because the rest of the time is just brick by brick building, and the image coalesces in their home, and I just sort of tap them and leave them. So they're just left. And, um, you know, there's a kind of evolution of how, this is 40 odd years of making dwellings, there's been an evolution of some of the early dwellings had dwelling and ritual place where the ritual places had a sort of sense of a sexualized landscape where it still referenced body parts, if you will, uh, that have then become architectural forms. So that things have you know, become more civilized, I guess is maybe the way to put it. Uh, but m mostly, aside from that story of each time making the little people a home, my world has mostly been, been um, I can't see this thing here. Been, um, uh, how do you want to say? I count on my two hands, basically the great moments of my life, if you will, uh, through the dwellings, which this is a good example. And so here's Josepha. This is in, in 1976 in Paris in a neighborhood called Belleville. Um, it was at that time an immigrant neighborhood. Uh, and Josepha's 10 year old who came from uh, Spain and was living with her aunt in this neighborhood. And somehow she bumped into me making my drawing. And so the first thing she said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm making a house for little people. And she, she said, oh, I know all about it. <laughs> no, it's not so funny because all of a sudden then she, like a bird, sang all about the world, the little people's world that she knew. And her little people's world was certainly, first of all, equally developed as mine was, uh, but moreover was reflecting a, this kind of moment of childhood going into adolescence and the kind of disappointments or sort of sense of the lack, the changes of morality, you know, the, the difference between a child's wish and, I, we were talking about it earlier, Melena and I were talking about the issue of sort of when childhood stops being a total fantasy and starts to confront some of the realities. And Josepha was confronting a lot of realities of her teenage uh, peers or whatever, the boys and girls who were a little older than her, who were giving, making her aware of that things weren't just as fantasy as she was. And so she, for instance, her first line thing was, oh, I know about the little people. You know, in my world of the little people, if you eat something and you don't share it, it turns to poison in your mouth. And then she would proceed from there to give me sort of ethical and moral lessons about what might be a better world and probably was pretty close or a better version of my, you know, I have to say, I think I'm somewhere between eight and 12 too in my, uh, in this fantasy. So, and her version was certainly equal to mine by far. Uh, and then I've done this all over the world. Uh, 1980, I went to China just after the Cultural Revolution. Uh, it was very exciting. I went and made a dwelling, and I don't know, if in the, in the uh, little bit of the film I showed you, you may have been able to catch the idea. There's always like one guy who saw me first, and then he explains me to everybody else. You know, I, think, I don't know if you noticed in the film, there was one guy, he stood there all day, and he would explain everything 
better than I could and also keeps me from having to repeat myself, which is also nice. So he would stand there and say, and that's our guy. And that guy then drew my picture and gave it to me. As a, and I have to say, that's actually this, the, the street for me making drawings is that. Uh, for instance, Joseph's aunt, who got very, finally very concerned that Joseph was spending all her days, every day, out there in the street with Charles. What, what, what? And she would come and say, can't you come up and have lunch? We live right there, you know? And I said, well, I can't leave the dwelling because uh, I've got to finish it. And so she would come then with a tray, with a cloth napkin, and bring us stew in the street. You know, because that was her version of how to make sure Joseph had her lunch. And the street is very, very generous in that way. Uh, and then I've done this all over the world. I mean, in a certain way, I lived, for instance, in Berlin for a year and worked in a neighborhood, Kreuzberg, which was largely Turkish kids, wonderful kids. Uh, and then also went and did, for instance, I would do exhibitions, art exhibitions. And I would then try to... Some, I would go out in the city and make dwellings. I would do thing in the museum, and then I'd just go out in the city and do dwellings. And, for instance, in this case, in Bonn, this, actually the center of Bonn, which at that time was the capital of Germany, I said, well, okay, let's get a, um, a storefront window. Uh, this is actually downtown Bonn. These, all these windows have, like, Caribbean vacation wear stuff. This is the middle of the winter, and they're all going to the Caribbean or... Tenerife for their vacation. They're all looking for the latest Caribbean-looking garb. And then they come across, these people are looking basically at the backsides of these kids. Because essentially what I did is I invited all these kids. I said, here, we're going to make this collective fantasy. And you all can work together. And all they, these people saw was the intensity of these kids orchestrating an, <laughs> what, I mean, an elaborate fantasy collectively. And I did that very intentionally in a way. Very often, I mean, in that time, it was consumerism in Germany, you know, they were so smug about everything being so great. Uh, it was sort of an interesting way of sort of saying, well, there are other things too. So, uh, okay, so now we can make a little more progress about what my work's sort of about, in a way, the sort of understructure of some of it. Uh, because in a certain way, the, the dwellings in the street are, uh, in a certain way, they're like linear people. They're just people who are peripatetically wandering around. It's like an endless story. And as I thought about them, and actually I was thinking about, well, how do people live in time? And so and uh, so I came up with the idea of linear people, you know, starting to abstract from the dwellings in the street. Well, there could be linear people who leave the past behind. You know, each family, they wander along, and sometimes they bump into other families, and they intermarry or whatever or pass by each other and they actually develop cities and with mixtures of ruins and parks and gardens and so, and then they just sort of wander off again out into wherever they're gonna go. So they're just sort of exploring the landscape, leaving the past behind, essentially like a museum. They don't, they, they go back and visit it, but they don't do anything about it. As opposed to people, for instance, who live by going around in a circle. So the past falls down and they come back around and they excavate the past and they rebuild it into the present. So they sort of resonate on their past. They sort of reconsider it, and it's a kind of a harmonic relation to your past, a kind of resonance of your past and trying to reintegrate it into your present. Uh, and then there's the remains of, there's a large work, was in the MoMA, but uh, the remains of a group of people who live in an ascending spiral, who just bury the past, who just try to see how high they can go. Uh, and there's sort of different, uh, I mean, I, let's see here. I then wrote a little thing called Three Peoples, which 
sort of uses, it's a kind of uh, fictive uh, Swiftian little characterization of what it's like to live in each one of these kinds of worlds and what your relationship to the past is. They're a little bit of a commentary on different kinds of social structures, primitive, capitalistic, socialistic, and so. I mean, there's this sort of Swiftian kind of, there's a sort of, sort of side poking at things. But it's a kind of fict fictional world, a little ethnography uh, that talks about what these different structures might mean in terms of how people live in time and space. Uh, and at the same time, um, instead of having a catalog for an exhibition, I was living with this Lucy Lepard, who was an art critic. Uh, we wrote a book together, Images of My Work, and her, well, let's see how to explain that. I asked her what it's, what's, what, okay, this is, she says, a, um, an archeologist, female archeologist, who goes on, goes digging, and uh, essentially it's a, a, a kind of um, diary of her, our life together, hers and mine. Mostly it's by day, and the days are mostly birthdays and different events in our life and so. So it's sort of a coded diary that essentially tells her relation to the little people. And to me was very instructive in a way, uh, in as much as, in a certain way, it's a, I, I don't know if other people, I think. <laughs> Uh, somehow I always think that people's reaction to the little people is, oh, you know, that's sort of silly, a little bit fey, kind of not very serious, and so. And that it's, there's a kind of uh, childishness to them. Certainly that's true. But at the same time, underneath, uh, there's, a, there's some, some heavy sledding to get through it uh, in terms of what some of the meanings are. And this sort of uh, text, which was sort of interesting to me, I mean, this is then... Her, this archaeologist, who she, Lucy says, well, it's archaeologist who fell in love with somebody from under the ground, and what happens? And essentially what happens is that at the end, she, quote, dug too deep, and the, the earth collapses on her and she dies. And in a certain way, it's, in, there's a certain poignancy to the way in which she wrote it that reveals something, it certainly revealed it back to me, of some of the kind of, um, you know, there's an easy avenue to think of the little people as very happy and la-di-da, and in fact, there's some kind of, it's not such a happy world, uh, and I'll show you why in a way. Uh, but we're gonna do a little side trip here. Um, so I became friends with Robert Smithson, and I was working on the Lower East Side, and um, I don't know if he'd already done this, or uh, anyway, somewhere along the way, I got aware of this, which was a little floating park. I don't know if you know, he'd made a little, this is just a drawing of it, but actually when they, they made a recreation of it for his last uh, large show at the Whitney uh, that was floated around the Hudson River. But he had this idea of an imaginary, like a little park that would get towed around. And uh, he and I talked quite a bit at that time. He was, that was when I was helping me with this funding of this park play lot that I did. And I started then, okay, I had this idea, okay, what would it be like if I could just make everybody their own perfect imaginary dwelling place on a barge. So for instance, if you wanted to be on a South Sea Island and I wanted to be on an English countryside, we just have our landscape, we attach them to each other, and if we no longer want to be together anymore, we could just float them away. And, uh, and mostly it was provoked by some of the issues, the housing issues, that I was very involved in housing issues at that time, and the speculation in the neighborhood on the Lower East Side, and how to sort of, we were, for instance, trying to find buildings that would block developments so that we had some control over different blocks and so. And it seemed so, it's like, a, like kind of an escapist version of that for me was, oh, okay, well, you have this idea, you can have your piece of property, but your property doesn't have location. So if you don't want to be 
you know, if it's not convenient to be where you are, you can go somewhere else. And it's sort of a very convenient way of sort of figuratively poking at issues of property and location and real estate. And um, then I discovered actually quite soon after that here was slumps in uh, shipbuilders were having facing slumps, periodically they do, uh, that they were making factories in Japan and floating them to Brazil and because it was cheaper and quicker and more efficient to do that. And, um, you know, I figured out, well, I'm way behind. And I developed the idea of floating cities. So the floating cities were kind of uh, communities that would f sail around the ocean and every once in a while they'd install themselves on a land-based economy and steal all the business. And then when they were done doing their business, they would go back around again. There were a little, little uh, fiction about the paranoias of land-based economies trying to deal with this idea of these floating cities. Uh, well, let's see what's coming up and you'll see. So I made a little toy. And the toy was just a little, these are very teensy little things. They're little ways of exploring. A lot of my work has to do with sort of mixed metaphors of simple life forms and societal forms. So there's a kind of specious analogous issue of, you know, factories, little spirals of industry approximating uh, digestion, for instance, or, I mean, it's sort of funny correlates to simple evolutionary issues of specialization in simple cellular organisms as a kind of lever to think about different ways of organizing. And I had this little toy, which had all these different pieces, which were mostly caricatures of, at that time, 1978, of, um, you know, modernist architecture and factory and whatever. And I had a little croupier stick, and each day I could pull in this thing and reconfigure it and sort of explore some of these ideas. And that, let's see. And so I then made also montages from those, in other words, taking pictures of that, just as ways to sort of explore this fantasy. Let's see where we are. And uh, which brings sort of to where, I mean, a lot of my work has to do with thinking about how people, uh, how they live, how their architecture reflects things, but also issues of building and growing. And a lot of the, the um, I mean, if you think about it, if you're involved with the earth, you're involved with things that grow from the earth. And the sort of the, the touchstone for many, many, many works, and particularly for, the, for instance, the work that um, we have here, Rock Flower, which I'll try to address in a few minutes, uh, com comes from this work. This is a drawing, uh, one of the, I think, three drawings I've ever made, uh, which is a, about a, a building. It's called the Growth House. It's about a building that's built with bricks that have seeds inside. So what you build as your shelter, as time goes by, turns into your food, and you harvest it and eat it, and then continue to rebuild going around. So you're sort of harvesting the remains of your dwelling. And this sets up a sort of marriage of building and growing. And in my funny ways of thinking, especially particularly as a son of two psychoanalysts, um, there's some issues of... Um, in a certain way, I think of this as hermaphroditic structure, for instance. Uh, if you think of building as a kind of male, what I call manque, kind of envy of female fertility, of growing, the mystery of growth, as opposed to building as an imitation of growth. Uh, there's sort of a marriage of those two ideas in my mind. And so it's a kind of, these are kind of leverages that I use in order to generate other thoughts. And some of them, We'll see in a minute. Uh, so this, for instance, is an early work like that, 1970. A little work. In the beginning, nobody bought anything, so I would give people things. This is a little ritual place with bricks that had my blood soaked in my blood. I was very well my body at that time. 
uh, and also these growth bricks. So the person who got this sculpture, I told him, you, know, you water this, and it's going to grow, and it grew, and so forth. So that's what, what that, and then the growth house itself actually was made, was made periodically, uh, both outside and inside, in museums and out in things. I mean, essentially, the growth house is meant to be a kind of cornucopia of all the fruits and flowers and vegetables. Uh, and that sort of brings us to where um, rock flower fits into some of this story. Um, these are in this issue of, for instance, this is called wilted towers. Now, in a certain way, to me at least, it's somewhat evident, but maybe it's congested out. You know, there's some sort of compacted metaphors of, uh, on the one hand, for instance, building and wilting. So you're already crossing issues of, of architecture with plant issues. Uh, likewise, there's some sort of, I would say, proverbial or sort of generic issues that have to do with gender aspects of it, whether from Freudian or Jungian or however you want to look at them, the different ways of analyzing these forms as reflective of gender issues. And sort of they're very mixed up and I'm not sure that I can put them into the words that would make them any clearer, but they're in this is a kind of meditation on some of those issues of mixtures of, of you know, what is a, a this is called uh, a ruined blossom, I'm sorry, it's called ruined blossom. So there's a kind of mixture of some issues of, I, I think, for instance, the sources for these are often, or not sources, but the meditations are all on, on things, uh, uh, mixtures of Gaudi and theosophical issues and uh, some Freudian, Jungian type mixtures of stuff. And that's sort of where this, where your work fits in here actually, is in that, that realm. Uh, some of them approximate some issues of, uh, for instance, is one that's a labyrinth that I think of as a, a seduction of finding your way into the earth. They're like stories about how architecture tells a story about some of those body and life issues in a way. Let's see. So this is back on the Lower East Side. I'm very involved in sort of rehabilitating buildings and so forth. This is a proposal for a, a tenement museum. Now they have one, but this was the idea of having a, we, this was actually used to block the proposal was used to block the develop, a developer from coming in and taking part of this block. It was like a key item in the, that part of the net, that block. Uh, but it was to be a little museum that would have the recordings, it was an abandoned building, have the recordings of the former tenants putatively uh, playing in the rooms so that you would hear the history of the neighborhood. And we, you know, the, a lot of our time was spent rejuvenating and greening the Lower East Side, Vest Pocket Parks, and so forth. Uh, and which brings you to some, I think Melena mentioned this, uh, a, an architecture museum in Basel, Switzerland, that has an artist come once a year. Uh, Christo came first and he wrapped the building and then they unwrapped it, it was great. Uh, and then they had me come the second one. And essentially it's a modernist building that had three columns and two bearing walls and uh, I essentially turned the three columns back into trees. Uh, so, you know, for instance, you could tell which floor you are on by the thickness of the tree. And um, then the trees went right through. And at that time they had a kind of acid rain issue. So we had living, dying and dead tree, sort of exemplary issue. And we turned off the services in the building and just had a lot of birds moved in actually, it was sort of nice.
Uh, and I, I, I think we're getting towards the end, but I wanted to, to go through one little uh, piece of information here. Because often I'm sort of, people find me um, as if I were um, secretive about the fantasies that are in the dwellings that I make. And I, I, um, I actually don't advertise what I do in the street, for instance. I'm very loath to tell people what my fantasy is that's in a particular dwelling, and it's quite articulate, usually, and very idiosyncratic, I might say. And I have no real interest or need or intention that the person who's coming along see my fantasy. There was, it's much more about them having the opportunity to create their own fantasy in that space, or even to make a dwelling of their own, so there's some interaction in that way. And, but at the same time, uh, I use this particular image as a way of sort of, I give you kind of the smell of my kind of fantasy, so you get a sense of what, how I think about these things, uh, which may be sort of instructive on some levels, uh, maybe psychologically at least, or autobiographically. Uh, so this is called Justice. And this is a work that I gave to a lawyer friend who was kind of a moral pole for me, a mentor. And um, here's the story. So here is a little prison cells. And the person who's accused is then brought out on his day of trial. And he walks here. And he's walking. These walls are too high to see where he's going. So all he sees is the sky above and the ground. He goes up these stairs. And of course, he's facing this way, so he can't see this situation. He goes inside this tower, and he comes out up here, and he stands here, and he, he's then told that, he's, since he's accused of something, that he has the opportunity, if he wants, he can just jump off and impale himself on these stakes. It's actually my blood. I use my blood a lot in my works. Here are the bones of the previous guilty people. Uh, he can just jump off. If he doesn't want to jump off, he can have a trial, if he thinks he may be innocent. And um, he has a, you know, a lawyer for and against, and he has a judge who then explains to him that there's a jury, and uh, the jury has these little clay balls, and if they judge him to be guilty, they throw their balls, and then he'll either jump or be pushed down, just the same. But if he's innocent, he gets to walk down these very majestic little stairs, and comes along and he meets the judge and they go out their gates to freedom. That's the kind of story that goes into these kind of funny things that I do. And the story for this that I've taken a little time enough to try to figure out, well, where does that story come from, Charles, uh, is probably a mixture of two things that I can identify. One is a kind of traumatic film, like when you're eight years old and you see some, one of these grade B Hollywood movies and people are being thrown off parapets and they get impaled on stakes and so. And that, I, I still have the memory of having seen that film. So certainly that's some sort of expiation of that experience. And the other part of this is the rather unfortunate superego that my father instilled on me. That's a kind of very punishing superego of sort of low that you ever do anything wrong. And so somewhere in this is I think some sort of version of like well, gosh, if, what happens if you do something wrong? You're going to end up having to jump off voluntarily, uh, sort of admit your guilt and kill yourself. So, I mean, it's a tough road to hoe, I guess, in a certain way. Uh, and I, I mean, the only reason I use this is in a certain way, certainly that's part, part of what goes into these dwellings is some sort of autobiographical uh, denouement of things, I guess. 
so these are very early ones. I'll just skip these. That's actually the one that I was mentioning about finding your way into the Earth. A kind of a seduction. I think we're almost done. Now, so then more, that, so that is essentially the work that I probably am most known for. And uh, more recently, this maybe goes back about 10, 15 years, uh, all the way along, I'm very involved in the particular clays that I, that I use. I dig the clays, and they, particularly these two, this red and this gray, I dig in a place in Sayreville, New Jersey, an abandoned clay pit. And I've used them now 40 odd years, and I'm quite familiar with them. Uh, they're very intimate to me, how they behave when they go from wet to dry. They're not processed clays, they're just clays you dig from the ground. So they're very particular in the ways in which they behave at different moments going from wet, wet to dry. And I've always used those aspects of the clay in the works that I do as, as, as almost techniques, if you will, or effects, uh, how, they, how they crack and how they behave as they, as they dry and what you can do at certain times and not at other times in terms of carving them and so forth. But more recently, I've started to think about the clays, uh, since they are sort of a prima materia for me, as just a kind of uh, how to co correlate a gesture, uh, an action with them that is meet to their primalness in that way. So in a certain way, smears, if you think sort of infantile smears, as a way of arriving at a fantasy and a kind of uh, story without an a priori image. I think what, I, what I'm driving at is most of the things that I've shown you, even the dwellings in the street, although they're improvisational and they evolve of the, of the moment, uh, are almost, certainly all the architect, bigger architecture works that I've shown you are prefigured. They're like mental images that I see. I can actually turn them around in my mind and alter them and change them to, my, to meet to what I want. But then they're executed in a certain way. The, the image is there and it, it gets to be executed in that way more or less successfully, but as if the, the fantasy has already put a, a lid on what can happen. There's very little that changes. I mean, in fact, like once a piece broke, I could put it back exactly the way it was because that's what it was supposed to be in, in its uh, fantasy. And the, the, what I'm driving at is the opportunity of these is to allow the fantasy to become less of a control and allows the material to surface as a, a way of suggesting things, if you will. And so I've done a lot of that. Uh, some of them have to do with chopping holes in people's houses that also alter, sort of address somebody, somebody's particular time and place in their life in terms of their bedroom or whatever. Uh, some of them have issues of where they are, like Russian icon height, things like that. There are different ways of sort of creating a place. Uh, and then more recently, the same issue of allowing a kind of breathing in the fantasy, I've started to vignette some of the story. So that something, there's a little part of the story, like the, the more important part of the story that's vignetted, and then parts of the landscape will suggest the rest of the landscape. Rather than having to tell the whole story, certain parts are, you know, here's a stream and it running down. It tells you that there's some other things that happened here that are part of the story. And so it's a way of allowing the contour to tell you something about what the rest of the story is, rather than trying to demonstrate the story. And it's the same strategy in a certain way for me of trying to find other gambits that, that free up some of the f fantasy in a way to allow it to become more easily, if I put it that way. And I've done a lot of that now. Um, and some of them are really even more complicated. This is a very, very large work, uh, probably about 15 by, 15 feet, it's seen end on, so it's hard to explain. But uh, where the, the 
there's a, for instance, it's called Mental Earth. And it's a kind of, uh, kind of I call it hypnagogic. It's a sort of the sensation when you lie back and you imagine something in front of your face, you know, just a kind of dream. Uh, where they don't have any, this doesn't have any architectural substrate, any time or place. I mean, in a funny way, it's allowed me to return to some interior art places because it sort of benefits and profits by a non-space, a non-time. Uh, that a gallery or museum provides. It doesn't have the, you know, the street is very embedded or working in a mental hospital, you're embedded with a particular time and place and history or whatever. Uh, so this is a sort of a, a funny return to some issues, uh, but allows me to sort of fantasize things as they go. It's a, like a, a kind of daydream. Uh, and it's been very, I've, I've found it very uh, exciting and beneficial for me. Uh, and so let's speak about mental hospitals, actually. Mental Earth was the name of that piece. Um, I think we're almost done here. Uh, so I, I think Elena mentioned I had an exhibition at a museum in France, the uh, Jeu de Pump, a retrospective. And at that same time, I was asked if I'd like to go and work in a mental hospital in Paris. Actually, it's the hospital where Artaud was incarcerated and so forth. Um, and I said, sure, let's see what, what can be. And I sort of presented to the administrators of the hospital an idea about what the patients could do, and they agreed, and I'll explain how that went. But while I was installing the show here, I would go each day, I would get the day started here, and get the workers going to do what they got to do, and I would go over to the hospital and spend the afternoon in the hospital working with these mental patients together on a communal sculpture. And very, very quickly, it became evident to me, on the metro mostly, gee, these over here, these guys, they're tearing their hair out and they're acting, they're so anxious and crazy, if you will. I mean, really nuts. And, you know, stabbing each other in the back and doing all sorts of strange things. And uh, then I'd get over here and it was like going, taking a bath. You know, they called me Petit Charles. And uh, we would talk baby French and we all sat around in a little thing, a little coffee clutch of making little clay things. And we had a great time. It was the most relaxing time of my entire stay there. And it certainly revealed for me something about the differences between these two situations, which has been proverbial throughout my life, I have to say, is the, um, this sort of quality of the differences of the experiences of what happens, for instance, in the street or in a mental hospital and so forth. I mean, I'll show you why these people, for instance, in the mental hospital understood me much better than anyone else. Um, so this is an old piece at the Guggenheim, but this, it was sort of the model for this idea. This is the work that the patients and I did. And essentially it was a little mountain, uh, kind of on a wedding cake kind of platform, and each patient was offered a cord of the cake, and they could make a fantasy in, their, in that space. And if they wanted to, since they were next to another patient, they could connect their trails or mix things together or not. And some did and some didn't. But uh, essentially, there were, you see, they were facing towards this thing around in a little circle. And normally in this atelier, for the patients, there was like a woman in a smock, a therapist who would stand over somebody with a little masonite square with some clay on it and, you know, sort of accusatively say, well, well what are you making, you know? And of course, in this situation, there was no possibility of that because all the patients were facing each other and the therapist was behind their backs. And so they ended up having these very remarkable conversations uh, and likewise massaging each other's backs because they had this very difficult leaning over and became very involved with each other in ways that the, essentially were interdit in the hospital. They weren't allowed to touch each other and so forth. Uh, but it went on that way and it became very wonderful. 
And actually, this is an image of this thing installed in the entranceway of the hospital, much to the pride of the patients, who, uh, I'll show you, who seem to me to understand me quite well. Uh, here's something that one of the patients made. Now, this is a, a stairs. And I said, well, where, where does it go to? Where does it lead to? And she said, well, why does the stairs have to lead anywhere? Can it just be a place to scream from? And in a certain way, uh, it's not so far from how I actually think. I mean, this, the vocabulary of stairs, walls, doors. Uh, likewise, I showed them then the circular people. And they said immediately, oh, well, that's, that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to rebuild our present from the remains of our past, from the ruins of our past. And uh, I mean, that was the... The, the metaphor and the paradigm from which they were operating essentially in their lives. And so all the kind of, um, what do you say, the vocabulary of the ways in which I think, of the different ingredients of how I think, were, were in a certain way excruciatingly existential for them and very, very dramatic on a certain level and in ways that maybe correlate to some of the childhood and childishness of how I actually go about some of these uh, meanings of these things. So I felt quite at home, actually. Uh, and I think we're almost done. The, this is another crazy, another mental hospital, as far as I'm concerned. There's a place called Sev in France, a porcelain, government porcelain place where they make things. And I went there and actually drove them crazy uh, by making uh, funny, very difficult things to make out of porcelain. People who make porcelain get nervous when I show them this. this it's not, not cool, it's very difficult. Uh, it's called uh, Life with Thorns. Uh, and oh, oh dear, there's a little more. Are you guys holding up? Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry, so I didn't realize this. <laughs> I, was, I said to myself, I'm going to make this shorter this time, and it's not, not any shorter at all. So, okay. Um, so, uh, my little world has lots of little funny things. This is a very small thing. This is six by nine inches, maybe. And, um, you know, it's, it's a little like a collection of evolutions of knives and, you know, containers and little games. This is teensy, this is maybe an inch square. Little games and uh, dildos. Different, different kinds of bricks, you know, a lot of dildos and things. It's, it's like a normal world. It's like everybody else's world. Okay, let's see. Uh, and then I, a very well, there's a level of figuration in all the things I do. This sort of body and earth are, are together. And there are many sculptures that are that are not often seen very much, but that are um, that have a personage quality where the, the figurativeness, figurativeness is underneath in a certain way, and sometimes comes more or less to the surface. And uh, uh, this, I think, uh, Lena mentioned, I recently did an exhibition at Dumbarton Oaks uh, where they let me re sort of install my things amidst their things, which was very nice. John Beersley's courageous, I'd say, uh, especially considering that it was difficult for some people. Uh, but in any case, uh, for instance, I discovered that, whoa, here's a work that I'd made, I think, in 1990-something which is a little pod that becomes a pubescent torso, that becomes a goat head, laughing, heated, in heat goat, clown, death mask. You know, often the often arrival, this sort of kind of composite story of fantasies, is, was not so far from these Haina figure ideas of figures coming out of corn husks and so. And so it's funny, I mean, I was completely unaware of this imagery. I finally see myself as sort of channeling these, 
strange things. And likewise, here in the, some of the Byzantine things, I found myself, I mean, here's my pregnant cross, whatever, and uh, some of their issues, I guess. Uh, and I made a cabinet of curiosities, the rare books. People were happy to let me borrow some things from there. Uh, since some of my things come out of, how do you want to say, Jungian things. And so it was nice to find some correlative issues. Yeah, I'm done. Thank you. We can turn up the lights if you want. Thank you. So we can have questions. So I hope you have some questions because I, I hope I didn't answer any. There's one in the back. Oh, yes, you're right. I, actually, they're not fired. So, uh, which is the first answer to your question. So, because I'm mostly involved in the process of the clay and the different colors, I collect sands and clays and so forth. And if they were fired, a lot of that would disappear and would lose its, what do you want to call it, the freedom of the ways in which I can handle the materials. Uh, for instance, a lot of times I do pattern colored brickwork. Would be, I've tried to do at Sev, for instance, in a fired version, it's almost impossible to accomplish. And so the firing, firing has never been an issue for me because I'm much more involved in process. And likewise, the street is, the, is maybe the key to that because their, 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 their consumption by destruction is a benefit to me, if you follow me. So from that ideological point of view, it's very easy. Uh, I'm not so much interested in artifacts and uh, saving things and so. So I, I think of that as, uh, I think of what I do as a, as a process and a, an interaction, for instance, uh, like was in the street or in mental hospital, whatever. Uh, so there's, uh, that's not an issue. Uh, the only things that I've made that are fired are the ones at SEV, which there are certain aspects of that that interests me, which have to, I mean, for instance, they also commissioned a service, a plate service. And there's some issues of commentaries on some of the traditions of Sev, of porcelain, that interest me, which have inevitably need to be fired. For instance, uh, one of the things I wanted to do was, um, you know, Sev, I don't know if you know what it is, but they did Catherine the Great's wedding service. You know, it's like a, since 1734, special place to make porcelain. and. Um, you know, for instance, they're very, some of the, they're very precious, the things that they make. Uh, and they represent a certain culture also, in terms of the monarchy and so on and so on. And so I, for instance, walked in and said, well, first of all, I'd like to make sev jetable, means throwaway paper plate sev. You know, and, um, <laughs> you know, it's much to their, they love me, so, it's, you know, whatever. And so they're willing to try that. And we worked very hard to do that. We made some wonderful, I mean, my idea was actually, it's hard to explain, but I have a daughter and I thought I'll make her wedding service, right? But fortunately, she was very young and this is still yet to be done. But no matter, uh, thankfully she's not getting married soon, but I thought I'd make her wedding service, which would be leaves, little leaves. So in the beginning, it would be spring leaves and then summer leaves and fall leaves, different, serv different service, first course, second course. And so we start to work on that. And Sev, of course, had to do some major readjustments to the idea that actually I was planning with them to make, because Sev's mostly 
makes, you know, it's all about diplomatic services. They make the services for the embassies, for instance. So I said, well, you know, we're going to have a, we're going to have a dinner and we're going to throw away the plates. <laughs> and of course, the, it caused endless amounts of difficulty, I'd say is the best way to put it. So the, the, I do play with issues of permanence. And I mean, it's a long way of saying some of this does interest me. But in terms of the actual image of what I do, the, the um, articulateness and the specificity of the image that I'm after, such as that, uh, you, won't, you can't do it in firing it, I'm quite sure, having tried just as experiments and so forth. Right? Yes. About 30 something years. It's fine. The Met has taken over, the Metropolitan Museum is taking over the Whitney Museum. I don't know if you know that. Uh, that building, the Breuer building, is being taken over by the Metropolitan Museum. The dwellings that are across the street are on a building that was once a bank and is now going to be an Apple showroom, <laughs> Apple computer place. And Apple and the Met and I have all agreed, while they remodeled the building, their dwelling's been removed. As soon as they've finished remodeling, the dwelling goes back. So, Apple and the Met are good corporate citizens. <laughs> I guess. Anything else? Yes. Yeah, that's the one sadness I don't have any idea. I don't know if I could have, Joseph, if I could have followed up where she was. She was certainly one of the most brilliant people I've ever met, period. No question. And I might say, you know, for instance, at that time, I was working, I worked in the streets in Belleville, but all the, because I was also doing an exhibition in a little museum in Paris, all the press came to see, well, once one came, one came to see me work in the streets. And as soon as they discovered Josepha, there was a parade of press who all they, they didn't, all they wanted to do was hear Josepha, who was singing like a bird. Anybody who listened to her for 30 seconds understood that you were just, all you just sit there like that and listen. And it was so beautiful. And so actually it is really one of my biggest regrets in life that I wasn't, you know, you're doing things you don't think about, well, what's going to be later on? But certainly I would love to know what happened to Joseph, really. Mm. Yeah, I've been able to sell a certain amount of work. The work, you know, my materials don't cost me anything. So I go dig the clay and it's time. I'm not a wealthy man and I don't need to be. So it's not a, I'm not, in, not ambitious in that way, I guess. I make a living. I live relatively frugally. I mean, I'm fortunate in some ways. Uh, so it's not a big deal. I mean, early on I made a bit of money because I showed in galleries and so, and so I put that money in savings, like all good people are supposed to do. All right, thank you so much for coming. <laughs>